Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. This is going to be a series. I'm going to guess it'll be about three parts, and it's going to take me maybe about another week to get all three parts out to you. I wanted to put together an update episode on the University of Idaho murders. Most of you know what this case is about, but as I was writing this, it was becoming kind of a long discussion. You know how I get. And I am taking a short road trip to California tomorrow, so I'm going to have to break this up into parts. So this case, it is one that has gripped the nation since the news broke back on November 13th, 2022, that four students living in an off-campus house, Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, I was pronouncing it wrong in the original episode that I did on this case back in January. It's with a soft C in the middle of her last name, and I was saying it with a hard C. Zana Kernodal and Ethan Chapin were the four people that were murdered on that night. They were all stabbed to death, and it's a crime that shook the college town of Moscow. As they had not seen a murder in their city for more than seven years. The ensuing days and weeks following the murder had everybody on edge because law enforcement was keeping very tight lipped about the investigation. But we would come to find out at the end of December when a suspect was arrested thousands of miles away in his family home located in eastern Pennsylvania that the investigators had him on the radar for longer than they had let on. The one thing they did not want to do was tip their suspect off or cause him to flee or to destroy evidence. The suspect was extradited back to Idaho and shortly thereafter, the probable cause affidavit was released and that's when we found out how the various law enforcement agencies involved in the investigation zeroed in on him. It was shortly after the affidavit went public that we talked about this case on our podcast. Well, since that episode aired, there has been a lot of talk about this story and lots of speculation and discussion about the suspect. I wanted to go over some of the developments that have come out in the past five months or so. And you know what, Dreamers, I'm going to be honest with you. I listened to another recent Dateline podcast episode. And at first I tried Googling around to see where all this information came from that they got. But when I went back to the Dateline episode, it said that they had some inside information from quote unquote sources. So I'm going to tell you basically what I learned and heard from Keith Morrison. But if you want to go and listen to him and the way he tells his stories, then by all means, I mean, I'd rather listen to him over me as well. So we're going to go over other news in the case that has come out over the past several months. But mostly the reason I wanted to do this was because I was very surprised to hear about what was going on with the suspect and his family while he was back east during the winter break, celebrating the holidays. I'm going to briefly go over the timeline of events just really quickly as a refresher for all of us, starting with a month before the murders. In October of 2022, the suspect was a PhD criminology student at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, which is less than eight miles or 13 kilometers west of Moscow, Idaho. Sometime during the month of October, the suspect sent several messages to one of the victims on social media, messages that apparently went unanswered. However, Dateline will say that this information is incorrect. So I don't know. I don't know where the information came from. Dateline is pretty reputable. But that's just what's been reported. On the evening of November 12, 2022, the victims went to a party and a bar. Madison and Kaylee got food from a food truck. They were captured on surveillance videos, smiling and having a good time. In the early morning hours of the next day, all four of them were murdered in their shared off-campus house. Two other roommates were home at the time, but were not harmed. It is believed that the four victims were murdered between 3 and 4 in the morning. The 911 call from a surviving roommate was made around 12 p.m. 
In December of 2022, police appealed to the public for help looking for a white Hyundai Elantra that had been seen near the scene of the crime. The suspect, when he was taken into custody later on that month, would be found driving a white Hyundai Elantra. Also in December, the suspect finished up his school semester, after which time his father flew out to Washington State from their hometown in Pennsylvania in order to drive with the suspect across the country back home for the winter break in that very same white Hyundai Elantra. During the cross-country trip, the suspect was pulled over twice, both times in the state of Indiana, each incident only being 10 minutes apart. Both times he was let off with a warning, and both times were captured on police body cam videos, and all the police agencies and law enforcement agencies that were involved in this case have said that they had nothing to do with those traffic stops. This, these all happened before they had zeroed in on his vehicle. On December 30th, 2022, the suspect was arrested at his family home in Chestnut Hill Township, Pennsylvania. On January 3rd, the suspect appeared at an extradition hearing in Pennsylvania, at which time he agreed to be extradited back to Idaho. The next day, the suspect arrived in the state of Idaho. He is currently being held without bond in the Lataw County Jail, charged with four counts of murder and one count of burglary. On January 12th, the suspect appeared in court for a preliminary hearing. His attorney requested a probable cause hearing to be set for June. But when the suspect was formally indicted by a grand jury on the five charges on May 17, 2023, that probable cause hearing was canceled. During that indictment hearing, the suspect refused to verbally enter a plea while he was being arraigned. Almost always the defendant speaks, and almost always we hear the words, not guilty, but he wouldn't even do that. So the suspect's attorney said that his client was standing silent on the charges, so the judge entered the not guilty plea on his behalf. So we don't exactly know what the motive for the murders actually is at this point. But boy, there has been some crazy speculation going on. The general consensus is, I believe, that the suspect had some possible fixation on one of the girls. I've heard specifically that it was Kaylee Gonsalves. I think back in January, I wasn't sure which of the two it was, whether it was Kaylee or if it was Madison. But if I'm not mistaken, I believe that the rumor was that Kaylee was the one who was being messaged by the suspect on social media a month prior to the murders, but never replied to him. In the top six or seven Google searches, when I inputted University of Idaho murders motive, I got a potpourri of top results that spoke to psychologists, profilers, former law enforcement officers, and a variety of other analysts who listed a whole bunch of possible motives, including Lust, love, loathing, rage, doesn't have, can't get, deep-seated anger, resentment, jealousy, rejection, a need for revenge, murder by proxy, resentment towards females, being an incel, which is an involuntary celibate, chasing a thrill kill, wanting to experience emotional or sexual excitement, desire to carry out the perfect murder, outsmarting investigators, sadistic pleasure, desire to assert dominance, uncontrollable rage, inability to establish romantic or sexual relationships, and hatred. It's all a guessing game right now, but if I had to land on a motive that I believe would be behind a crime like this, I think it would have to have been a lifetime of a combination of some or all of those things, and that one of the victims said or did something, or possibly even said or did nothing, in other words, the suspect was completely ignored or completely blown off, that the combination of those things caused the suspect to finally snap. To me, it sort of felt like he decided a long time ago when he was being bullied and made fun of in middle school and high school especially by the popular girls and the cheerleaders and whatnot, 
that he set out on this course to become an expert in getting away with murder, which is why he majored in criminology. Because of the shocking nature of the crimes, the number of victims, and just how violent it was, it feels like something the killer had been preparing himself for for a very, very long time. You know his name, and you know what he looks like, and you know what he's accused of. And if you're like me, then you're pretty sure he's guilty. I can't stand looking at him. This man, this suspect, he'd completely disgust me, so we won't even speak his name. If you're doubtful or want to give this guy the benefit of the doubt, or if you want to continue on with him being innocent and to proven guilty, I commend you, but I'm not feeling that generous. And maybe this isn't the episode for you. This man is suspected of carrying out a quadruple murder that has really shaken all of us. Anyone who is a student, anyone who is just living their life, and any one of us who are parents of young people who are doing nothing but the right thing. This is the monster that we warn our children about. He's the stuff that nightmares are made of. If you've listened to the two most recent episodes that I've done, episodes 263 and 264, then you know we talked about a guy named Chad Wallen-Reed. If you haven't listened to it, I don't want to give away the whole story, but he basically reacted violently to a situation he claimed put the fear of God into himself, his wife, and his three young children. And that situation was a group of bored 19 and 20-year-olds acting like fools, stealing some cheap solar lights that Chad had set up down at the end of his driveway. Chad felt as if an act of vandalism was deserving of the death penalty in his book. I talked about how much irrational fear that he instilled in the minds of his children with his and his wife's overreactions to something relatively petty, solar lights. Imagine sending your child off to a small town college in the state ranked 39 out of 50 in terms of population. Less than 2 million people live in Idaho. That's 38 million less than in California. These kids should have been having the time of their lives. And they were about to be done with college and preparing to move on to the next phase until the boogeyman crept into their home on that November night last year and ended them. One right after another, after another, after another. When this man was done, four lives, four children, four futures were gone. And I will, for the life of me, will never understand how men like this think that they have the right to do something like this. I'll never understand it. That is something to be afraid of. Not the things that Chad and his wife in episodes 263 and 264 were deathly afraid of, apparently. But anyway, this leaves us with the question in this case that we're talking about today, these four murders in Moscow, Idaho. Why? Why? If there is any validity as to the possible motive behind these murders, that this suspect was slighted by one of the young ladies that he killed, or if she ignored him, or she brushed him off, she looked at him weird because he's a creep. Whatever she did, this man did not have the right to respond with violence. It makes me think that this guy, who has lived all of 28 miserable years, must have been a piece of shit his entire life for it to have come together last November and culminated in the murders of four people. It does feel like he just snapped after years and years of being a loser. Perhaps. Whatever it was that happened, whomever it was that gave him a dirty look or didn't reply to his DMs, that this was all he could take. This was the last straw. And this was his answer, the solution to his shitty life and his pathetic existence. His answer was murder. Just one look at this guy's mugshot and you can see in his eyes that you are looking at a nothing and a nobody. The only thing this guy could do to even begin to feel like someone is to do what he did. 
And once the killings were done, then what, you dumbass? The only person who knew what he did was himself until investigators figured it out. He killed four people. And then what? He feels big. He feels all powerful. Everybody wants to know who did this. The killings are all over the news and he's probably so freaking proud of himself. But then what? He's still a nobody and he's still a nothing to everyone around him because nobody knows. This narcissistic piece of shit wanted attention. He wanted the pretty girl. And because he's a weird creep, nobody would give him the time of day. So he goes and kills four people. But guess what, asshole? You're still a weird creep. But now that you've committed four murders, you're a paranoid weird creep. So much so that you couldn't even hide the truth, especially from your own family. Because as I came to find out from listening to the Dateline episode, it didn't take long for his family to figure this out. That's how bizarre and how much of a freak this guy is. His own family was like, you did this, didn't you? Whose family says that to them? Who is sitting around at Christmas time looking over at their loved one and openly expressing the fact that they actually believed in their heart of hearts that he was the University of Idaho killer? I'll tell you who. This guy. Nobody's family would ever think that we're mass killers. None of us. None of our families would even go there. We have covered cases where families have been into the deepest depths of denial in the face of unassailable evidence that their loved one was guilty, but not this guy. And yeah, one look at his fugly face and that jacked up nose and those soulless eyes, we can see why his family knew immediately that he did this. And I will give you the details about how all of that unfolded a little bit later on. The suspect has been in the Lataw County Jail, a five-minute drive from the King Road house where those four young people lost their lives, allegedly at his hands. The suspect was supposed to have a preliminary hearing on Monday, June 26th, but because he was formally indicted on May 17th and his attorney entered a not guilty plea on his behalf, or the judge did, at his arraignment five days later on Monday the 22nd, that hearing was canceled. The indictment is sealed and a gag order has been in place since the suspect was arrested. But there are sources who are speaking to certain media outlets with some really interesting details that I just wanted to share with you on our show. For those of you who may or may not have your ears tuned into every single crime podcast out there. Many of our lives play out on social media these days. Perhaps more so for those who are in the age group of the four young people who were murdered. Kaylee, who was 21 years old and just weeks away from walking away from the University of Idaho, degree in hand, already set up with a new job and a new place to live in Texas when she was killed. She was back at the King Road house for a visit. My first inclination is to say something like she wasn't even supposed to be there, but you know what? That's a technicality. In fact, Kaylee absolutely was supposed to be there with her friends, having fun, enjoying her life. The same could be said for 20-year-old Ethan. He technically wasn't living at the house either, but he absolutely had every right to be there as well, visiting his girlfriend, 20-year-old Zanna. She, along with 21-year-old Madison, this was their home. This was supposed to be their safe place. The one who wasn't supposed to be there was the one who, for whatever reason, whatever motive, decided that the four of them needed to die and that he was the one that was going to make that happen. If we are to believe that one of the victims said something or did something or perhaps didn't do something that triggered the suspect to kill, then it is possible that in some capacity, social media played somewhat of a role in setting him off. The big three social media platforms that they used were Snapchat, Instagram, and TikTok, or at least the ones that were said to have been used most frequently. So a lot of times, these people's lives were documented moment to moment for those who follow them. You can see what your friends are up to, what they're doing, and where they're at. And sometimes your social media presence attracts the attention of people you don't know. 
people who will randomly message you, people you don't necessarily want to message back. It seems that may have been what was happening here to the suspect in these killings. He allegedly messaged one of the victims, DM'd one of them, but didn't get a reply. According to some reports in the media, the suspect followed Kaylee, Madison, and Zana on Instagram. If that was the case, then it leads me to believe that he knew the three of them were roommates. And because of the way the killer moved through the three-story King Road house so efficiently, it also leads me to believe that he was familiar with the layout of the home. So how would he know the layout? Well, we do know that this house had been somewhat of a party house. We have heard reports that the police were called about noise disturbances at that house. And if I'm not mistaken, there was at least one occasion when the police showed up in regards to a complaint and there was a party going on at the house and nobody who actually resided in the home was present. So does this mean that the house had kind of an open door policy when it came to parties? Just anybody who happened to wander by and notice a party could walk right in, no questions asked. And from that, it could be speculated that the suspect found his way into one of these parties, perhaps on more than one occasion, and was able to scope the place out. He learned the layout of the home to see which room belonged to which young woman, unbeknownst to her, and at some point, she sent him into a homicidal rage, or someone did. This is all my own speculation. I know none of this to be fact. But the thing is, I'm big on motives, and I thought a lot about why this crime happened. And the fact is, people have killed over less. We know that for a fact. People kill for the stupidest reasons. Like in the episode previous to this one, a young man lost his life over a solar light. But in our case today, it just can't be denied that men like we suspect this guy to be, they kill because they're filled with hate and filled with self-loathing. But whatever the case is, for now, the reasons for the killings, the reasons why the killer had one or more of these young people in Moscow, Idaho, in his sights is a mystery. But I will say this, the source that spoke to Dateline said that the suspect did not follow the roommates on social media, but it's strongly been suggested that he did message at least one of them or was potentially stalking one of them and was using social media in order to track them. Because those statements are contradictory, we're just going to have to wait and see what happens and develops in the coming months as we move closer to this guy being set for trial. For now, everything is sealed and everyone's been ordered to keep their mouths shut to the media. So all we can do is speculate. Since the killings, there have been lots of questions swirling around who exactly the suspect is or was. Maybe looking into his past, we can get an idea of what shaped him into what we believe him to be today. Personally, I don't think it's all that complicated. If he was awkward and weird when he was little, if he was bullied and teased and ignored by all the pretty girls, then he's simply going to grow up into someone who is potentially very dangerous. We've seen it time and again with the mass shooters and the mass killers. When you get a glimpse into their background, it's not surprising to find a long-standing hatred directed towards women. They have this idealized version in their heads of what the perfect woman is like. And often, these guys are so weird and so creepy that they regularly get rejected or ignored, and that is if they even try to talk to or approach a female. And then, all of a sudden, it becomes her fault. She's the stuck-up bitch. He'll show her, right? And instead of taking a personal inventory of themselves to see what they could do to change or improve, they just sit there and fester in their own self-loathing. Pile on the rejection and frustration across all the years of middle school and high school, and in this case, into college. And one day, they just snap. They can't take it anymore. 
And instead of seeking help or searching for ways to redirect their toxicity, they continue to blame women and they use that energy to hatch a homicidal plan. These misogynistic men cannot accept that they're the ones who aren't right. It's all the women who never gave them the time of day. All of those perfect, pretty bitches that don't even know they exist, right? They're the ones that are wrong. Which gives you an idea of just how absurd these men are. Because how can women be perfect and wrong at the same time? None of it makes sense. There are plenty of men out there who've got it figured out. They have a clear understanding that some women are a fantasy and the rest of them will date you. People who knew the suspect when he was a kid said exactly what I'm saying. He was an awkward loner. He struggled with his weight. Yeah, dude, join the club. He didn't socialize much. He was quiet and mostly kept to himself. And because he was weird and had no friends, he was bullied. And when he came to girls, he was the butt of all their jokes. Some of the earliest glimpses into the suspect's little mind dates back to when he was around 15 or 16 years old. I'm going to read to you some of the things that he wrote online or some images that I found of his online postings. They were in a forum or a support group on visual snow, which I'll talk about briefly in a moment. So on October 29th, 2010, the suspect wrote on this website or this forum called tapatalk.com. He said, have you ever felt like this? I have felt completely disconnected from reality. I feel all the time that I am living in my own reality. It seems as if my brain chemistry is altered from this, even though I am certain it's not. At first, I felt very uninterested in the things I usually like to do, but then it has changed to the point I saw no reason for anything and everything became boring to me. I feel at times completely disconnected and as if I can't live like a normal person. When I think about my future, I think about how I will barely remember my mother and father, etc. Because I have an altered memory and also have been unable to think of them due to the things I think about nonstop all at once. Visual snow, altered brain, tinnitus, disappointment, regret, etc. I think that possibly I could have brought this on myself from post-traumatic stress disorder or something similar, but I can't tell what it is. I have had two medicines mixed, Divalprolex and Topiramate, with 16 extra-strength Mucinex pills, and I felt like this could have altered my brain, but I remember how it was before, and I remember that I felt like it before. It's all really bullshit. If I have any chemistry change, I have this detox program that can fix it. Okay, so those two medications are seizure medications. And this visual snow that the suspect talked about, that is seeing things like you would see static on a TV. And if you're too young to remember what static on a TV looks like, it's kind of like seeing things as if you were inside of a snow globe that's been shaken up. If you're too young to know what a snow globe is, then I can't help you. I honestly don't know what to make of this suspect's writings. I think he's realizing that there's something off about himself. I mean, clearly, right? But he wants to try to figure out what it is and why it's happening. To an extent, I think there are some things woven in there that he's saying that's relatable to most of us on some level. It sounds like he may have had some trauma or abuse that he's repressed for so long that he might be having a hard time identifying it. So in another post the suspect made on July 4th, 2011 on Tapatalk, those images I was able to find of the post were kind of cut off for some reason, but there was an article on sportskita.com and it pulled some quotes from that post. And in it, the suspect said that he had been experiencing horrible depersonalization for about two years. He called himself an organic sack of meat with no self-worth and that he was incapable of connecting with his family, that he was stuck in a void of nothing and felt no emotions. 
He described himself as dizzy and confused, and he also wrote, As I hug my family, I look into their faces, and I see nothing. It's like I'm looking at a video game, but less. I feel less than mentally damaged. It is like I have severe brain damage. I am stuck in the depths of my mind where I have to constantly battle my demons. Am I here or am I fake? I feel myself slipping away. I hear screams faintly, but I constantly battle away from it. On May 12, 2011, the suspect wrote, Fog, lack of comprehension at some times, no interest in activity, constant thought of suicide, crazy thoughts, delusions of grandeur, anxiety, poor self-image, poor social skills, no emotion. I feel like nothing has a point to it. When I get home, I am mean to my family. This started when visual snow did. I felt no emotion, and along with depersonalization, I can say and do whatever I want with little remorse. Everyone hates me pretty much. I am an asshole. On December 19th, 2011, the suspect had a post where he wrote, I have had this for over two years, and I've had it bad in every single way. Not one night have I slept normal since, and I feel like I am trapped here. I have been able to block it out for a while now, but I realize what is wrong, and it suddenly becomes unbelievable. I am desensitized in every way now. People say these are supposed to be the years I enjoy and cherish. Well, I can't say I will cherish these days. I found a short Reddit post that discussed the suspect's online postings on Tapatalk, and I'll share that with you, and then I'm going to move on from this. Expanding on the idea of visual snow, it says that it is a functional visual disorder causing hazy or snowed visual fields and other optics phenomena often associated with psychiatric conditions, including depression, anxiety, and depersonalization. The suspect said that he first started developing visual snow symptoms at the age of nine, somewhat intermittently, and then he posted about this on the support forum on the subject from the ages of 14 through 17. When the suspect was 14, he wrote that when his visual snow really began was during the summer, he was on his computer for most of the day, drinking a lot of coffee, along with intensifying anxiety, and at some point he woke up with visual snow, which from that point forward became a chronic problem. On November 1st, 2009, that's when he made his first post on the forum about visual snow. He said that he was about to turn 15 years old and that he doesn't want to wish he were dead because of this horrible thing. And from there, the suspect didn't post for about a year. He came back at the age of 15 in September of 2010 with the post that I just shared with you about him not remembering anything recent or anything from his childhood, that he's depressed, and that he has this fixation on visual snow symptoms, and that his life is pointless. For the next six months, the suspect had some sporadic posts until April of 2011, when he shared a post that read in part, I know the cause slash cure of visual snow, and that he had this visual snow toxin slash diet theory. As time went on, the suspect had two theories about visual snow that he posted about numerous times that the condition is an inflammatory vascular disease because he described having severe throbbing sensations in his head and that visual snow was caused or made worse by ingesting toxins. From there, the suspect became obsessed with diet and nutrition as a means of treating or curing visual snow. He became convinced that toxins, specifically an external fungal infection, is what was causing the symptoms. He began advocating for specific dietary regimens to help, but it ended up causing him a lot of problems in the Visual Snow Forum with some users criticizing him as if he were trying to sell them on some BS that he was just making up in his own mind. It got to the point where the suspect even threatened to leave the forum, which only made things worse for him. Yeah, one way to get an entire group of people to turn on you is to announce that you're going to leave that group of people. 
So the post that he made persisted in the Visual Snow forum, apparently for quite a number of years, even after the suspect removed himself from the forum. It has become pretty well known that the suspect is vegan and that the obsession of the connection between Visual Snow and diet is what may have led to this vegan diet. So the suspect stayed active on the Visual Snow forum site for a while. And then in May of 2011, he made a long post about his own psychiatric symptoms and intensifying depersonalization. Depersonalization, by the way, is a disorder that occurs when you persistently and repeatedly have the feeling that you're observing yourself from the outside of your body, or you have the sense that things around you aren't real, or both. On July 4th, 2011, that's when he made a long, insightful, but somewhat dark post. I couldn't get a full screenshot of it. A lot of it was cut off, like I said, but he talked about feelings of hopelessness and alienation, and he wrote, nothing I do is enjoyable. I am blank. I have no opinion. I have no emotion. I have nothing. Can you relate? The suspect went quiet until that December when he shared a post that he titled, I simply don't want to live anymore. He continued to post for three more days before going quiet again until February 19th, 2012. That's when he was 17 years old and he announced that he would be leaving the Visual Snow Support Forum, stating that he had come to terms with his condition. I have just accepted my Visual Snow finally. I don't even feel the need to stay away from the forum. It doesn't scare me anymore. Anyone else come to terms. I feel like coming to terms could be a bad thing, though. Okay, so dreamers, we're going to come to find, as we get into the information the Dateline episode pulled from their exclusive sources, that once the suspect became an adult and went on to college and I believe lost some weight, he just started to develop this arrogance about him. And it kind of reminded me of Elliot Roger. Remember him, the Isla Vista shooter, who talked about having designer clothes and designer sunglasses and that he drove a BMW, yet the girls weren't flocking to him. And he couldn't figure out why total lacking any sense of self-awareness, right? Because we all know that you just can't put a pair of Gucci sunglasses on and an Armani t-shirt and stick yourself into a BMW and, and all of a sudden become less of a weird creep. And I guess what I'm saying here is that I would have to say the same thing about the suspect in the Idaho murders. The suspect himself said that he has delusions of grandeur. Based on the way he was writing and psychoanalyzing himself in these posts on Tapa Talk, he seems to think that he has the ability to self-diagnose, probably based on what he's found on Google. But because he himself said that he has these delusions of grandeur, then even he realized at a fairly young age that he's full of shit. When you believe that you have more smarts, more power, more wealth, and other grand traits than what's actually true, and you can kind of tell that this guy thinks he's pretty smart. He probably thinks he's smarter than everybody in the room, which is the case with a lot of criminal defendants who try to plan the perfect murder. It seems pretty clear, even with the limited amount of information that we have about this case so far, that the person who committed these four murders tried to do just that, plan the perfect murder. And the fact that the suspect was a PhD student in criminology, I believe, speaks to that level of planning. But it's like how I pointed out in the earlier episode from back in January when we first started talking about this case. It doesn't matter how many college degrees or letters or abbreviations you have before or after your name. It's just about damn near impossible to plan a murder and actually get away with it these days. In fact, it seems like the less planning that goes into a murder, the harder it is to solve. Because you're always going to make stupid mistakes, such as dropping your knife sheath with your DNA at the scene, or using your own vehicle and bringing along your cell phone while you're at the murder. You know, stupid stuff. Because this guy already realized just how disconnected he actually was, 
how void he was of any sort of feelings or emotions, and just how abundantly insignificant of a human being that he was and is. Even back when he was a teenager, he knew all this stuff about himself. It leads me to think that the suspect thought he could college educate himself into someone of significance, into a person of substance, into a human being who was capable of logical thinking, someone who was sensible and reasonable, someone who could outsmart anyone beneath him who didn't have a PhD. And you know, generally speaking, to become a police officer, you don't need a college degree. You just need your high school diploma or equivalent for most agencies. That being said, I can imagine the suspects sitting around thinking about this murder, feeling as if, you know, they're in this small town that hasn't had to investigate a homicide in seven years. What are those cops going to know about trying to solve a murder? And I'm not so sure the suspect went into these killings with the intention of killing four people. It seems most likely, based on the information that we have, that he was targeting one of them. So if we assume that to be true, then he's planning on going in, committing the murder very quickly and easily without any interference, because at that time in the morning, it's after 4 a.m., it's plenty of time for the bars and restaurants to close down and for everybody to make their way home, wind down, and go to bed. He may not have anticipated Xana and Ethan being there, especially Ethan, still very much awake, looking at TikToks and ordering DoorDash. He didn't think he was going to have the struggle that he was going to have. He never thought he would leave such damning evidence behind. And he probably didn't think he was going to encounter anybody on his way out of the house. He probably thought that he would just do this one murder and these inexperienced, uneducated, small-town cops would never be able to figure it out because he had these delusions of grandeur that he was the smartest person in the room. In the Dateline episode, they had some experts talking about the suspect's online postings from when he was a teenager and the self-diagnosed visual snow. It was said that there were a number of reasons why someone might be experiencing visual snow when looking at the world and the things that the suspect mentioned in his post was an amalgamation of vague symptoms, including some anxiety, some disassociative, and some depressive. And it caused him to feel very disconnected and broken. And it's been reported by those who knew the suspect that he had developed an addiction to heroin and marijuana. And it is known for a time that the suspect was in rehab. The suspect also struggled with his weight, but eventually lost about 100 pounds or 45 kilograms by the time he graduated from high school. The expert was asked about some of these significant events in the suspect's life during the time he was a teenager and in high school, and they appeared to be ways that he was trying to get people to accept him or like him, losing weight, academic success, opening up in online forums about mental health issues. These may have all been ways for him to get some positive attention as well as a measure of sympathy. Like I said, it reminds me of the Isla Vista killer, Elliot Roger. If I wear nice clothes, if I have designer sunglasses, if I drive a nice car, then people are going to like me. And by the way, if you're not familiar with who Elliot Roger was, we covered him on this podcast in three parts starting at episode 50, 50, 51, and 52. I just went to Google the episode numbers for you, and I found that series being recommended on Reddit. We do get mentioned now and again on Reddit, but most of the time I'm actually afraid to look. But anyway, Elliot Roger had that manifesto where he wrote about how his whole life was like a shit show of people rejecting him and him hating the world. And basically it manifested into this deep hatred towards women, particularly what he believed to be his ideal woman to be and the type of men that those ideal women tend to be attracted to. I don't know if he referred to these men as chads, but you know what I mean? We talked about Chad in the last episode, but this is kind of like the incels definition of a chad. They're like, Super obnoxious hyper males. That's what they're like, bros. 
So this is somewhat offensive, but I looked up a few things on a dedicated incel page and they have like their own Wikipedia. I didn't even know that was a thing. So I found the term Chad on their page and it says, a Chad is a man who can elicit near universal positive female sexual attention at will. He is usually good looking, muscular, tall, and wealthy, or has otherwise high status and tends to be a fast life history strategist. In countries where team sports are popular and associated with high social status, he is often a jock. He also tends to have intimidating masculine features, such as a square jaw, hunter eyes, pronounced cheekbones, a broad chin, and a thick neck. But dreamers, don't get it mixed up because highly attractive yet less masculine men are often considered quote-unquote pretty boys as opposed to chads. Chads are the primary male beneficiaries of the sexual revolution, according to this stupid website. And the girls that men like Elliot Roger and probably the suspect in the Idaho murders, they call them Stacys. And like chads, they have their own definition on the incel Wikipedia page. A woman able to secure sexual intimacy with Chad. Stacy is vain and obsessed with jewelry, makeup, and clothes. She is an entitled whore whose rich daddy funds her Caribbean vacations so she can go find herself. A typical Stacy entertains a flock of orbiters who shower her with attention and validation only to open her legs up for a Chad or a Tyrone instead. According to the Insult website, a Tyrone is a Chad of sub-Saharan African descent. The most prolific Tyrone in modern history is probably Wilt Chamberlain. I'm quoting the web page directly. Don't, this isn't me, okay? Just let's be clear. Tyrone is most commonly found in gangs or in insurance companies. Okay, so I get all of that except for the insurance company part. I'm not really sure what that means. It's not really that important because these incels are just weird and delusional. But anyway, all of that is to say that the motive behind this crime possibly has something to do with the suspect specifically targeting one of the girls that he murdered or if one of the girls represented this idea of the stereotypical Stacy type, which is utter bullshit that incels have made up in their own stupid, feeble little minds. I've just been getting these kind of Elliot Roger incel vibes from the Idaho suspect. This is all my speculation again. We don't know what the suspect's motives were. We don't know who he was targeting. Even if there are reasons for these killings, there's no making any sense of it unless we can get into this killer's mind. And if he's as narcissistic as he seems to be, particularly to those who have interacted with him, then someday we might find out what's going on with this guy. But for now, we can only be guessing. One last thing about those online postings on the Visual Snow Forum. The suspect, and this is years before the murders took place, mind you, he wrote that he was battling demons, wandering around the streets alone, and feeling like a criminal. So it sounds like the suspect was visualizing himself being a criminal long before he ever became one or became suspected of one, going back to the ages of 14, 15, and 16, more than a decade before the murders ever took place. So after the suspect graduated from high school, he attended a community college in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania called Northampton. It was sometime in 2016 when this woman named Haley Willett, who today is a registered nurse, said that she met the suspect on Tinder and she actually went on a date with him. She posted about her experience on TikTok. They went to a movie. Afterwards, I guess, she invited him back to her dorm. She said it was weird that he tried tickling her, which just sounds so cringe. And then she said that he tried to rub her shoulders. I mean, on a first date? Seriously? I would have gotten rid of this guy so fast. She was able to abruptly end her date by pretending that she wasn't feeling well. Later on, the suspect sent her a message telling her that she had good birthing hips, 
freaking weirdo. Why in the holy hell would you say that to a girl? And he wonders why nobody likes him and he has no friends and girls won't talk to him. It's because he says stupid stuff like that. I don't even think that there is a man out there that needs to be told to never, ever say that to a woman ever, unless she's her girlfriend or your wife and she's very, very pregnant. And even then I would err on the side of caution and just keep your mouth shut. When it comes to the suspect, if all of this is true, what this woman Haley Willett was saying, then it does seem like that there is just a lot of issues going on with this guy. He's got a lot going on inside. And one of the experts who talked about these indicators said that it may have culminated in him having these intense feelings of trying to somehow get even. So anyway, when the suspect was 23 years old in 2018, he began attending DeSales University, a private Catholic school located in Center Valley, Pennsylvania, which is a little less than an hour away from his hometown. And a guy who became the suspect's lab partner spoke to Dateline. They were lab partners for a semester. He echoed the same sentiments about the personality of the suspect that he's odd and awkward. In addition to that, somewhat controlling over the project. He wanted things to be his way or not at all. And he warned his lab partner to not mess anything up. The young women in the class described the suspect as a loner with a staring problem, but they stopped short of calling him a creep. It was just kind of the way that he was and people just sort of accepted it. Nobody really thought much of him beyond that. The suspect ended up graduating with his bachelor's degree, and that happened right at the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. So when the suspect began his master's degree program in criminal justice, he was doing all of those classes remotely. And it was during these online criminology courses where some of the subject matter started to involve serial killers because that was his major. And we've heard early on how at least one of his professors discussed or had the students research the BTK killer, Dennis Rader. So yeah, the suspect was somewhere sitting around in an online master's degree class studying the BTK. He took classes taught by a professor who focused on extreme violence. And one of the books that the students were required to read was the one she wrote about BTK. She was actually able to speak to Dennis Rader on the phone to gather up all the information that was in her book firsthand from the killer himself. I mean, I like true crime just like the rest of you weirdos, but that's just a little next level for me. I don't think I would feel comfortable talking to BTK on the phone, but that's just me. Dennis Rader's daughter, Carrie Rawson, spoke to Dateline about the Idaho murder suspect, having studied her dad while in college. And she pointed out that there were some things about her father that were going on during the early days of his serial killing, dating back to the mid-1970s, that somewhat mirrored what we are seeing going on with the suspect we're talking about in this case. Dennis Rader, his daughter said, was studying criminal justice at the time he was committing his earliest murders. And we know that he was infamously writing letters to the police, giving himself that moniker BTK, which of course stands for Bind, Torture, Kill. Dennis Rader's last known killing was in 1991. And for one reason or another, he stopped with those taunting letters to police for about 10 years and then suddenly picked it back up again in 2004, which is how he ultimately got caught. It was technology that caught up with him because his dumbass wrote a letter on a floppy disk. And if you don't know what a floppy disk was, again, ask your parents. And that disk contained metadata, which basically told the police where the document was created, which was at the Christ Lutheran Church, and who the last person that modified it was. That would be Dennis. And what do you know, Mr. BTK was the president of the church council at the Christ Lutheran Church. But anyway, he was studying criminal justice and serial killing. and He was actually interacting with the investigators who were investigating him. 
in the capacity of his studies. Kind of like Edmund Kemper. We covered him last Halloween. He was serial killing around Santa Cruz County, California. And then he would be going to bars at night, just sort of shooting the shit with the local police who were gathering there after work to talk about the serial killer who was murdering young women in the area. All the while, the serial killer was sitting right there with them, gathering all the intel and all the case information that they were openly talking about over some cold beers. Anyway, that was super sidetracky. Dennis Rader's daughter also said that like the suspect in the Idaho murders, her father was also often rejected by women because he was socially awkward as well. The suspect received his master's in criminology in June of 2022. Prior to graduating, it was discovered that the suspect had posted a survey on Reddit and his target group were convicted criminals. You know, if the suspect wanted some real expert insight, he should have posted a research survey for crime podcasters, I'm just saying. Anyway, I never really looked at the survey. I heard about it in the media, but I never looked at it until right now as I'm writing this. So if you haven't seen it, then we're seeing it together for the first time here. Well, you're hearing it. I'm seeing it. I found the survey on a Reddit page called True Crime Thoughts, and it was posted by a user named Time Traveler. It's titled Crime Research Study, and it says, please note that the following survey asked you to detail your most recent criminal offense, whether you were caught or not. In the event you are not charged, convicted, or incarcerated for the offense, you may still participate. Well, doesn't that sound like somebody really wants to know more about getting away with crime and how to not get caught, right? I mean, he really sounds like he wants to talk to people who weren't charged, weren't convicted, weren't incarcerated, whether you were caught or not. You can still take my survey because I want to know all your dirty little secrets. So the survey says, welcome to the research study. We are interested in understanding how emotions and psychological traits influence the decision-making involved in committing a crime. After completing a series of background questions, you will be presented with open-ended questions. Sorry, that was Fred sneezing. You will be presented with open-ended questions relevant to the most recent crime that you were involved in and asked to detail your thoughts, emotions, and actions from the beginning to the end of the crime commission process. In order to best understand your unique psychological traits, surveys will be included after the open-ended section. Please be assured that your responses will be kept completely confidential. Or they're going to be used to help this guy commit the perfect murder, am I right? Yeah, nice try. The study should take you around 15 to 20 minutes to complete. Your participation in this research is voluntary. You have the right to withdraw at any point during the study for any reason without any prejudice. If you have any questions about this research, you may contact the research team via email. Then it has a suspect's name as student investigator. Whatever. From there, it asks the participants for their age, gender identity, sex assigned at birth, if you're of Spanish, Hispanic, or of Latino origin, your race, your highest level of education completed. Have you ever been incarcerated? What age were you when you committed your first crime? What category best represents your most recent crime? And the choices for that being property offense, violent offense, drug offense, or other. Were you convicted? Did you commit the crime alone? If not, how many people were involved? At the time of the crime, were you employed? Were you under the influence of drugs or alcohol? Were you experiencing issues with your family? Were you gang affiliated? Was this your first offense? Did you struggle or fight with the victim? Then there were some open-ended questions. How was your life right before the crime occurred? Did you prepare for the crime before leaving your home? Please explain. How did you travel to and enter the location where the crime occurred? After arriving, what steps did you take prior to locating the victim or the target? Detail your thoughts and feelings. How did you choose that victim or target over others? Before making your move, how did you approach the victim or target? 
What was the first move you made in order to accomplish your goal? How did you accomplish your goal before leaving? Is there anything else that you did? How did you leave the scene after committing the crime? What were you thinking or feeling? Then the survey asked about being bothered by any of the following, feeling nervous, anxious, or on edge, not being able to stop or control worrying, worrying too much about different things, trouble relaxing, being so restless that it's hard to sit still, becoming easily annoyed or irritable, feeling afraid as if something awful might happen, having little interest or pleasure in doing things, feeling down, depressed, or hopeless, trouble falling or staying asleep or sleeping too much, feeling tired or having little energy, poor appetite or overeating, feeling bad about yourself or that you're a failure or you have let yourself or your family down, trouble concentrating, moving or speaking so slowly that people have noticed, or being so fidgety or restless, moving around more than usual, thoughts that you would be better off dead or thoughts of hurting yourself. And from there, it had a series of on a scale of one to five types of questions, extremely unlikely to extremely likely. You receive too much change at a store and decide to keep it. What's the likelihood that you would feel uncomfortable about it? You secretly committed a felony. What's the likelihood that you would feel remorse? At a co-worker's housewarming party, you spilled red wine on their new cream-colored carpet. You cover the stain with a chair so nobody notices. What is the likelihood that you would feel the way you acted was pathetic? You lie to people, but they never find out. What's the likelihood that you would feel terrible about that lie? And out of frustration, you break the photocopier at work. No one is around and you leave without telling anyone. What is the likelihood that you would feel bad about the way you acted? But anyway, there are more questions about behaviors and actions kind of like one of those sort of psychological tests that you take when you're applying for a job or whatever. But it seriously feels like the suspect is really trying to do his homework as he works himself up to get ready to do what he's suspected of doing. The expert interviewed about this by Dateline on this case, who has not examined or spoken to the suspect, feels like the survey is somewhat of a representation of exactly what the suspect wanted to do. So he arrived at Washington State University only four months before the murders. It was for his very first semester in the PhD program. And according to this super amazing inside information that Dateline got, the suspect did some shopping on Amazon before he left Pennsylvania for Washington. And one of the items that he purchased was that K-bar knife, along with the sheath that would end up leading investigators right to him. And it doesn't seem like this knife that the suspect chose was just random or by accident, because the K-bar is used in the military and is considered to be one of the best knives in the world. I looked it up on bladehq.com, and on that website it says, Introduced in the 1940s, the K-Bar USMC, which is the Marine Corps, marked a move away from dagger-like trench knives and a move towards more utilitarian knives. The K-Bar USMC fixed blade Bowie is one of the world's most widely used knives in history with a regular issue to soldiers still taking place to this day. A review below that description says, If you want a combat slash survival knife, this is the classic. You can't go wrong with the K-Bar. It is a sturdy and reliable knife that will last even the most abusive tasks. Keeps an edge up well and is easy to touch up. Classic knife, classic choice. And dreamers, as you know, that knife came with a sheath And it was that sheet that the suspect inadvertently left behind next to one of his victims. It was found to have DNA on the snap and that DNA turned out to be a match to the suspect. There is a record of him making that very knife and sheath purchase online on Amazon. So that along with the DNA, those are the reasons why most of us are pretty comfortable that the right man is behind bars and being charged with these murders. Because of the history behind this knife, 
because of it being one of the best in the world when it comes to combat and hunting, it really feels like no coincidence that this was the suspect's weapon of choice. From everything we know about this man, he researches and thinks and possibly over-researches and overthinks everything. He always has and he probably always will. I can see him getting his Amazon delivery, getting that knife in his hands, feeling it, imagining what he was going to use it for. And that knife would make that cross-country trip with him when it was time for him to begin his course of study at Washington State University, where just four months later, he would put that knife to use and he would lose its priceless sheath. Okay, dreamers, I'm going to go ahead and end this part here. I'm leaving for California in the morning for just a couple of days. I'm going to guess that the series is going to be about three parts, and I fully intend to get them done in pretty quick succession now that I'm on part-time status at my moonlighting job. I'm also going to try to get the rest of those pride stickers out to you. For those of you who have emailed me in the last week and a half, I want to try to get those done tonight. You won't have to wait very long for the next parts in this series and for the Patreon episode for the month. This is also in the works. I'm really excited about June. We're coming up on our sixth anniversary, if you can believe that. All right, that's all I've got for tonight. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank you for everything, for all of your love, all of your support. And as always, until next time, sweet dreams.